We live in a society today where there are more false religions than at any other point in history. There are literally thousands of religions around the world that have deviated from God's plan. So how do we make sure that we are not in a religion that has changed God's plan? Well, the answer to that question is by properly studying the Bible. In this special two-part series, we will look at how to properly study the Bible so that we can correctly understand what is being taught so we are doing what God expects us to do to be pleasing to Him. We will consider important study principles such as understanding literal versus figurative language, considering the context of what is being taught, the conditions and circumstances of life during the first century, and many other important principles that we should look at when we are studying the Bible. So stay tuned. Welcome to the Bible Questions podcast brought to you by BibleQuestions.org and the Holly Street Church of Christ. This podcast is dedicated to answering your Bible questions from the Bible. My name is Jeff, and along with Brian, we are the hosts of this program. Welcome, everybody, to our podcast today, where we will be talking about how to properly study the Bible. First and foremost, Jeff, how are you doing this afternoon? Hey, I'm, I'm doing real well. Given the, uh, the intro you've given our audience so far, it sounds like we got a lot to talk about today. Yeah, this is one of those subjects that we could almost say it's an important topic about every subject in the Bible, right? But certainly, this is a subject where I think at a fundamental level, as students, as those who start to read the Bible, we all at some point just want to understand how do we properly study the Bible? And it's not something that is easy, is it? I mean, but it's also something that can be learned and, and is important to our Christian walk. Well, and as you said, very foundational, because if, if you don't approach the Bible with the right kind of attitude, but also with the right kind of tools or diagnostics or whatever, just like you would try to approach any current book from antiquity, you're going to misunderstand it. You're going to misinterpret it. You're going to walk away with the wrong conclusion. And whereas that might be okay if I'm, you know, reading a cookbook or reading some ancient piece of, uh, you know, secular literature. But when it comes to the Bible, if I walk away misunderstanding it, you know, that could have eternal consequences. That's right. And, and I'm glad that you brought up the analogy to just regular life. When you think about any of us, whether we're in school or we're learning a trade or whatever it might be, we understand that we have to look at the pattern, the blueprint, the standard to truly understand what it is that we're studying. And, and God's word is no different. And, and as you pointed out, the biggest difference though between secular knowledge and spiritual knowledge from the Lord is the spiritual knowledge, if we do not get that right, absolutely can have eternal consequences. Exactly. So it makes it very, you know, critically important to kind of handle it correctly, so to speak. So a lot to talk about, like you said, and we're going to split this up. This will uh, be a study that will cover two parts. Uh, in this first part, we want to talk about for things such as, you know, the importance of Bible study to kind of start out with. Uh, then, Jeff, you're going to talk about context and why that's important. We'll move into the audience and how when you're reading something in the scriptures, it's important to know who the audience is, who's being spoken to, if you will. We'll look at literal versus figurative language, things like conditions and circumstances that they lived in and around during that time. And then once we get into 
the second part of this, Jeff, we're also going to kind of expand into things like correctly defining words, you know, certain precautions that we should take when we when we do study the Bible and things like use of study aid. So very broad subject, Jeff, a lot to cover. We just ask everybody to listen, take notes and try to learn how to properly study. Sounds good. Let's start out by looking at 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. Now, most of the passages that we read uh, during this, Jeff, I use the New King James primarily. This particular passage, I like how it reads in King James better. And I'm only making this distinction to say to our listeners, you know, if you're using a major translation, American Standard, New American Standard, English Standard, King James, New King James, those may read a little differently, but they're pretty good translations. They really are solid. And so sometimes when you're studying, using different translations, the way a passage is worded helps to understand it. So in this case here, 2 Timothy 2.15, the King James says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The New King James says, Be diligent to show thyself approved unto God. And, and really... You know, like I say, the study part, I like that particular word, but really what we're saying here is this foundational principle of it's our responsibility to study. It's our responsibility to put ourselves in a position where we can be a worker for the Lord and accurately teach, understand, I guess, first, and then teach his word. And so we realized, you know, Jeff, we had in a previous podcast talked about a lot of the false religions in the world today. And we certainly see that now there are more false religions than at any other point in history. And so when you think about looking at all of these religions, if you were to study them one by one, every one of these, especially denominations founded by men and women, they've deviated from God's word in some way. And so when you think about one of the reasons God sent his son into the world, it was to teach us his will. His son was the living truth. And so when we think about what Jesus gave to us, well, he gave us the words of life is basically what he gave us. And Jesus warns us and saying, if we disregard his words or his commands, then we will be punished or judged by those very words. Over in John chapter 12, Let's take a look at verses 48 through 50. And Jesus says there, He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command in what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, Whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. So Jesus faithfully conveyed what his Father wanted, conveyed, and taught. And so now Jesus is saying, if you do not receive those words ultimately from the Father, then you're rejecting me and you're rejecting the Father, and there will be consequences for that. So anyhow, when we think about this idea of the importance of Bible study, it really does start out, Jeff, with just the fundamental desire we should all have to do exactly what God would have us to do. And that can really only be accomplished through a study of his word. Well, and I think there's something we just kind of assumed that we might want to take a half step back. You know, we talk about you know studying the Bible and the assumption is it needs to be studied. And I guess what I'm trying to say is, unlike many books, the Bible is a fairly 
complex. No, it's certainly a long book collection of books, but it's got a lot of stuff in there, a lot of complexity, a lot of unusual people and events and, and teachings and, and whatever. And it's not something that you can just casually sit down and read, you know, like a modern you know, novel for entertainment kind of thing. You actually have to, it's almost like a, a high school or a college kind of book where you got to roll up your sleeves and actually dig in to it. Uh, and in some ways, we kind of see a, a byproduct of that, as you said today, with all the different religious groups and denominations that all of them claim be quote unquote Christian, all of them claim to be part of Christianity, claim to be disciples of Jesus, followers of what he said, etc. They all claim that. And yet they are so divided, so diverse, so contradictory. So we know, you know, they can't all be right. I mean, they may all be wrong, but, you know, they certainly can't all be right. And so, you know, part of that is recognizing the Bible. It, it's not an easy book. Mm -hmm. And there's some parts that are, right? But overall, it's not an easy book. And unless you're careful handling it, you, know, you could wind up going down the wrong path, like we said before. So, yeah, I just thought I would mention that before we go on to the next section. Yeah, I'm glad you, you mentioned taking a step back, because you're right. We shouldn't assume that we should just study the Bible. Everybody should just know you should study the Bible. Right? Right. But it, to your point, there are parts. I mean, let's face it. Most of it is pretty straightforward. If you read it, it is what it says and it says what it is and so forth. However, there are many places in the scriptures that are difficult to understand. It can still be understood, the, the word overall. Right. And we just have to be careful not to go to the other extreme and start introducing a bunch of things because of the complexity and things that are not easy to understand. Right. Good point. And, and maybe one of the first places where we want to kind of uh, establish some guidelines might be in what some people refer to as context. And for people who may not be all that familiar with, like, for instance, you know, English as a, as a language or the study of English, for instance, every day, every way, you know, we, we can easily see that an individual word or a phrase or a statement when you take it out of its intended context, can be easily misunderstood. I mean, obviously, you know, words and phrases often have multiple meanings. So you actually have to see how it is used by the speaker in the setting, you know, where, where the statement is made. And, you know, I, I hate to say it, but, you know, unfortunately, you know, we see that happening all the time, right? We see it happening in politics. We see it happening on the news, whatever. Where a person's words are either unintentionally or maybe intentionally twisted into some kind of a meaning that's completely different <laughs> than what the speaker intended just because the surrounding context of what the speaker said before or after is being ignored. And that's certainly true with respect to the scriptures. I mean, you have to look at, for starters, you know, the immediately surrounding verse or verses. And sometimes you may hear that called the, the immediate context you know, around a passage, especially if this is part of what I might call like a paragraph where the same kind of thought or intent is being relayed through, you know, multiple words, multiple phrases, multiple sentences within this one paragraph, for instance, uh, and that needing to look at the paragraph kind of as a whole. What's the author trying to say here as a whole? That's what some people call the immediate context. There's another context uh, that some people might call the remote context. And basically what that means is try to look at any other verse or passage, you know, somewhere else 
within the Bible that is dealing with the same topic. So if you have uh, you know, the subject of, of salvation, for instance, um, I wouldn't want to zero in on one verse without considering other verses. Mm-hmm. Even in today's world, you know, if, if you know, I'm a, say, a politician, let's say, and, and I make a statement, well, how does that statement compare or, or contrast with other statements I've made on the same topic or the same piece of legislation or, you know, again, whatever the case may be. So that's that's a need of, of looking around the Bible to similar passages. You know, salvation is a, probably a, a great example of that. Hey, Brian, if you want to, why don't you go ahead and read John chapter 3, um, maybe starting with verse 14 and winding up with verse 18. Okay. John 3, beating in verse 14, says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Thank you, Brian. Now, for some in our audience who may have some familiarity with the Bible, you know, John three sixteen is certainly a very commonly known verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So, at the very beginning... We've now included the context, right, around that one verse. You can go to Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, where in order to have remission of sins, you have to repent. Oh, that's more than just belief. Uh, You have to be baptized, and that's more than just belief. Uh, Romans 10.10 talks about belief in order to have salvation, but also says, and confess. There's another edition, Uh, Mark 16.16. It talks about, you know, believing to be saved also talks about believing and being baptized. So use of the remote context, other verses that deal with a similar subject, that of salvation. So we can relatively easily see that if people zero in on John you know, 3.16 and say, ah, I see, it says you must believe in Jesus, therefore you must believe only, that's all that's required. You can easily see from the remote context that that's a misuse of the passage that you can't latch onto one passage to teach, you know, belief only or faith only. If you do, you're misusing the passage because of the other passages on a similar topic. And before we leave, you know, immediate context and remote context, there are some other kinds of contexts as well. I'll mention just real briefly here, historical context, you know, where you have to take into account the, time factor of when a passage, you know, was written, particular events that were going on, you know, at the time. And I might quickly mention that includes carefully distinguishing between what might be either prohibited or permitted under the law of Moses in the Old Testament from what was prohibited or permitted under the New Testament, you know, law of Christ. And that's an important historical kind of context, cultural context, you know, certain words, expressions, sayings, um, might be best understood in terms of the culture of the time. For instance, you know, New Testament, uh, a lot of that is written in a surrounding Jewish culture, cultural context, with a lot of references to various Jewish 
practices and events and the names of things. So that's important. Sometimes geography, you know, in the geographic context, knowing where certain events are happening, uh, cities or places, etc. And then, of course, there's also the kind of a personal context, you know, people that are there in the context of what's being discussed, their particular attitudes, sins, qualities, circumstances. And we'll talk about more about that uh, in a moment. Uh, so from a contextual perspective, even that's fairly complex with different aspects. Um, Brian, did you want to add anything else to that? Yeah, context is so important. It's one of these where you can really get off the rails quickly if you don't pay attention to, the, as we just talked about, right? Passages around the passage you're reading and other passages on that particular subject. You know, I was thinking, Jeff, as you were talking about believe, and, and some would say, well, yeah, I believe uh, in somebody named Jesus, like if, for instance, Muslims believe that Jesus was a prophet, they don't believe he was the son of God. Other religions might have a belief that there was a man. But when you look at passages, you know, like Jesus talked about over in John chapter 8 and verse 24, where he says, you know, if you do not believe that I am and that I am deity is what he's saying, you will die in your sins. Uh, and, and so anyhow, when, when it comes to belief, we look at the Ethiopian eunuch when he gave what we call the good confession. He says, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. So anyhow, just a couple of passages that once again, if we look, we see, well, Jesus is telling that the belief part means that we need to believe he is indeed the son of God, not just some good man or prophet or whatever. Point. And I think in some ways, I think a lot of false doctrines may originate with people kind of latching on to a particular verse or even a couple of verses that quote unquote support what they're saying. Mm -hmm. But sometimes they, they don't expand their aperture, so to speak, to include other verses or the verses that quote unquote would appear to contradict the position they're taking. And again, it's all part of harmonizing everything the Bible says uh, on a given subject. Yeah, that's the key word there, right? Harmony, so that we can understand fully what God would have us to do and, and do that by looking in all areas of Scripture for that principle. Right, exactly. So the next principle that we'd like to talk about as far as how to properly study the Bible, and that would be audience. So who is being addressed? Over in Acts chapter 2 and verse 14, here, Peter said, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be made or let this be known to you and heed my word. So here, Peter's starting a sermon on the day of Pentecost. And the audience that he is addressing is, as he just said here, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Now, during this time, there were a lot of people that came to Jerusalem for the Passover. So it would have certainly been, you know, men from nations all around. Uh, and we know that because the apostles were speaking in languages other than their own. But anyhow, in the, the passage that we just read, Peter tells us who he was addressing, you know, the audience. And the preaching that followed was designed for that audience. So I think all of us just from school probably remember, or if you're in class or school now, that when you take a speech class, one of the first principles that you're taught is to consider the audience whom you'll be addressing. And I have a quote here from the University Writing Center at Texas A&M, where it says, quote, knowing your audience, whether readers or listeners, will help you to, to determine or help you determine what information to include in a document or presentation, as well as how to convey it most effectively. 
you should consider your audience when choosing your tone, content, and language, or else your message may seem unfocused or inappropriate. So good quote there, Jeff, to start out with talking about the reason why it's important when you're studying to understand the audience that was being addressed in the scriptures. Well, and we easily recognize that in speech today. As you said, you know, you need to know your audience, you know, say the things that are appropriate, use appropriate words or definitions or things they can relate to. And, you know, that's natural, right? You know, a good effective speakers today try to try to convey their message with those thoughts in mind. Well, in some ways, the Bible is no different because God is the ultimate author, is, is using the various, you know, speakers or writers, you know, to convey the message. And so given who the audience is, you'll see it gets so to speak, tailored for that particular audience. In this particular case, to the Jews of the time, and you'll notice, at least within Acts 2, you know, there will be certain appeals to these Jews you know, based on Old Testament prophecies, based on what David, you know, King David had said previously. So the audience could immediately relate to those kinds of things. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, we see the wisdom of the Holy Spirit as, as you look at just the Gospels alone, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, depending on the audience that was being addressed by the writer, the the content and the tone and all of that varied. And so I think everybody's probably picking up on the fact that we're saying not only is it important when writing a speech or preparing a document, of course, to consider your audience, but also the Bible. So as we've been talking about, you know, understanding the audience who the writer's addressing helps us to understand what the author's saying. And I think that's the key when you study. You want to understand what's the point the author's trying to make, why is he making it this way, so on and so forth. So let's just take a look at this principle of, of considering the audience and why it's important. As we were talking about on the day of Pentecost, when Peter addressed you know, men of Judea, all who dwell in Jerusalem, he was addressing primarily Jews, but there were proselytes there. And you know, a proselyte would just be somebody who was not a Jew but adhered to God's laws, so therefore followed the, the laws that the Jews followed. Um, they were knowledgeable about prophecy, so they knew their law. They knew the law of Moses. They knew what was prophesied about Jesus. And they also happened to be responsible for crucifying the Son of God. So when Peter started preaching on the day of Pentecost, he wanted to convict them of their sin. And we see that in verse 37 of Acts chapter 2 that he did just that. So. Therefore, when he prepared his speech or made his speech, and let's remember, of course, you know, this is with the guidance of the Holy Spirit, giving him the words to say. So we can really say here, the Holy Spirit tailored his words to impact the minds on those who are listening and to convict them of their sin. Now, you know, many times, especially when you're reading the Bible, you're not really told who the audience is that's being addressed. Sometimes you have to dig or sometimes you have to look at history and so on and so forth. So as a result, we may have to use our study aids to help determine this fact. This is maybe where something like a commentary, you know, could certainly help. Uh, so, for instance, in the book of Matthew, we are not given the details about the audience. But when we read the first chapter, we see that Matthew starts with a listing of the genealogy of Christ. So who would be interested in the genealogy of Christ? Well, one thing that scholars will tell you, if you look at commentaries and those kinds of study aids, is that he was writing, as in Matthew's, of course, the Holy Spirit, writing to the Jews, and this is why he started out by showing the lineage of Christ. 
So because genealogy was important to the Jews and Matthew's goal was to prove that Jesus was the Messiah by tracing his lineage to the old law, that's why he chose genealogy as one of the main subject matters for his speech. Because he knew that the Jews were familiar with prophecy and that they, they were familiar with genealogy and it would help to prove that Jesus was the Christ. So throughout the rest of the book of Matthew, we see that he makes several more references to the, that the Jews themselves would have understood. And therefore, it helped his message to be more effective to that audience. And so this is just one example of, you know, taking the time to find out who the audience was to be able to understand better, you know, why an author presents the message in a certain way, or more importantly, why God through the Holy Spirit felt it was to present a message a certain way. And so it's worth our time to understand more about what was being said to who, Jeff, and, and why, right? Yeah, good point. And, and I especially like the example from Matthew, as you said, starting off with the genealogy of Christ. And, and throughout, he's like constantly quoting you know, Old Testament, so to speak. Whereas, you know, a different gospel writer like Mark, apparently less quoting of the Old Testament. And in fact, sometimes, if I remember correctly, Mark will use a somewhat normal Jewish word. He'll turn around and define it. Mm, it yes. says his audience is different <laughs> than the Jews, right? Uh, probably more so a Gentile you know, audience, but uh, yeah, definitely a good point. And the other thing that our listeners will probably hear as we say it kind of over and over again, you know, there's a lot of things we take for granted today in terms of properly understanding a, a speaker, properly understanding a document. And in many ways, we naturally should use the same kind of approach, same kind of techniques or aids, if you will, when it comes to the Bible. You know, it's, it's, again, not that the Bible is super easy, nor is it written in some very obscure mathematical code that takes, you know, very, very highly specialized, you know, training and aids to unlock it. It's, you know, using the common tools that we have today, you know, understanding, you know, English kinds of things. Uh, in fact, about to use that to kind of roll into our next section, we talk about you know literal and figurative literal language and figurative language and certainly understand you know that's an important distinction to understand a given passage i mean simple example uh, john chapter 10 verse 9 jesus claims quote i am the door if anyone enters by me he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture quote. well is Jesus claiming to be a slab of wood with hinges and a doorknob? Well, no, of course not. He's claiming figuratively to be something similar to a door, a means of entry in this context, you know, to salvation. And, you know, you might say, well, that's, that's kind of silly, Jeff. And in a way, perhaps it is. But, you know, we use literal and figurative language all the time, you know, to convey meaning. You know, certainly the same is true within scriptures. If I want to give maybe a simple definition of the word figurative, well, you know, perhaps I could say a word or statement that's used to represent something else, like the one we just made a few moments ago with Jesus. You know, figurative language, you know, often creates a, a mental picture or image in the mind, the reader to really help them kind of understand you know, what's being said. And, you know, if anyone has done a study of the uh, English language, like in English class, high school, etc., we know there are all, are all different kinds of 
figures of speech. And many of them have specialized names. And our audience may or may not have heard of some of these, but I'll just kind of give you a, a small handful. You know, there's a figure of speech called a simile, and where a comparison is being made between two different things. And typically that comparison will have the word as or like used. First uh, Peter one twenty four classic example. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of men as the flower of grass. So he, you know, he's drawing a comparison using figurative language. That in some ways we're like grass, we're like flowers, we don't last very long. You know, not that we're green or that we sprout out of the ground. You know, that'd be silly, of course. A simile. Um, a similar kind of comparison that does not use the word like or as. Uh, metaphor is what that's used to refer to. Um, it's used in place of another to suggest this kind of a likeness. Um, I like uh, Jesus speaking in Luke uh, 13, verse 32, where contextually he's talking about Herod. He tells his audience, go tell that fox. And he goes on to say some more. Now, not that Herod was a small furry critter with little pointed ears and a bushy tail, obviously, but he was like a fox, sly like a fox, etc. You know, not a literal fox, but a figurative. Hyperbole, an exaggerated statement. Uh, sometimes to cause more of an emotional response, or, or sometimes maybe you give a clear meaning to what is really said. Here's an example, Psalms 119, 136. Rivers of water run down from my eyes because men do not keep your law. Obviously, he's not talking about a large creek or a river or a raging torrent somehow coming out of his face. That'd be silly. But as a hyperbole, to express the extreme degree of sorrow uh, that the psalm writer was having. And the fourth one will be the last one here. Um, and this occurs quite a bit in scripture, personification. And we use something similar today. You know, we'll give a, an animate object, you know, some kind of human quality, you know, like the wind speaks or the wind moans. For instance, um, Isaiah 55, 12. Mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Trees don't have hands. In terms of giving them somewhat human-like attributes, again, personification. Now, all these are like figures of speech. All these are, you know, figurative language. And in some ways, you know, when, when we say in English, well, people say, well, duh, Jeff, of course, that's a literal meaning or that's a figurative meaning, et cetera. Uh, but sometimes when it comes to the Bible, you know, people will get sort of cross-circuited. And sometimes they'll take a passage that's kind of meant to be literal. They'll want to assign some sort of wild, symbolic meaning to it. And likewise, they'll, they'll take uh, a passage that clearly is highly symbolic, highly figurative, poetic speech or whatever, and try to force it to be literal. And that's not the intent. Got a real quick list here. Uh, how can you tell the difference, especially if there's some question? A few quick rules. Generally speaking, it's good to assume a passage is literal unless it just doesn't make sense. You don't want to go wildly off the rails with some sort of highly figurative something written in code uh, when a literal meaning makes sense. Now, of course, Brian, there may be an exception to that if the whole passage or the whole book is written in highly symbolic language like you know, many of the prophetic books or the book of Revelation, right? 
you know, you can't just assume everything's literal. It's like, well, no, it's like the whole context uh, appears to be right. right? Um, and like we said already, sometimes you got to let the immediate context kind of let you know if this thing is being taken in a, or being spoken in a literal sense or a figurative sense. Um, sometimes if you look at it figuratively and you walk away going, well, that certainly makes no sense. You know, Herod was not a fox. Jesus is not a door. Okay, got it. Uh, sometimes the passage will tell us itself, you know, whether it is figurative and we should accept it as such. Uh, I think John 2, uh, 18 through 22, Jesus was talking about, you know, destroy this temple. His audience thought, well, what do you mean destroy the temple, this big stone structure? The passage says Jesus was referring to his body, uh, as in, in the uh, upcoming uh, crucifixion, as an example. Sometimes, you know, something being said, you know, can be a figure of speech. Uh, for instance, a classic example, Matthew 26, 26, where at the, what we call the Lord's Supper or the Passover meal, Jesus starts to sort of repurpose some of the elements that were there on the table, you know, unleavened bread, as an example. And he you know, picks this up and he looks at it and he tells his disciples, this is my body. And some people have viewed that, well, he must be talking literally. You know, that must be, you know, human protein with blood plasma in it, even though it looks like a piece of bread. But no, it's a figurative, figurative, you know, language. And certainly his audience understood that as well. I mean, he's not saying, okay, you know, I've magically transformed this thing into, you know, human flesh, and now we're going to pass it around and you're going to eat it. You're going to become cannibals. It's like, no, no, that, that certainly uh, doesn't make sense. The other thing I might add as a word or statement, you know, should be considered figurative if the literal interpretation would cause that passage to contradict others. And again, we're kind of back around to remote context, right? So depending on how you, if you look at a literal or figurative, that puts you at odds with other passages, well, then you may need to take a step back and go down the other path and see if that is a, a better fit. Brian, you want to add anything else here before we uh, transition to the next section beyond literal versus figurative? Yeah, I like the rules that you shared there. You know, it's interesting. What I would say the abuse and improper application of figurative language has, you know, really led to the creation of so many erroneous doctrines, such as premillennialism, the reign of your deity of Christ. You were talking about, Jeff, the Lord's Supper and how some might view because of what Jesus said that, you know, it's his literal body and blood. Well, we know, like, for instance, with Catholicism, that's led to beliefs like transubstantiation, where they believe that the bread and the fruit of the vine become the literal bread and body of Jesus. So anyhow, we just have to be so careful because it's easy if we're careless to either make doctrines out of erroneous concepts or to just flat out misinterpret it and, and lead ourselves down the wrong path. You know? Well, and I think you make a good point because as we said earlier, you know, there, there's a good part of it's relatively straightforward. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, you know, good history, for instance. And there are some teachings that are just, you know, relatively straightforward, steal, you know, take your neighbor's wife, you know, a lot of kinds of things that are relatively straightforward. But there are some passages and there are some books that are, as you point out, highly figurative. And so many different people have gone into those passages, like Book of Revelation, a good example, have walked away with extremely wildly diverse views, which to me speaks of, as you said, a need to be very careful 
uh, when when the majority or the exclusively uh, the passage you know is is highly symbolic highly figurative whatever you know you better anchor yourself over on very plain passages of scripture first understand what they say and use them to guide you as to what these figurative passages mean you don't want to work in the opposite direction like you know, use a figurative passage uh, some wild and crazy meaning and then i'm going to force that on the rest of the passages that are a lot clearer uh, even though it kind of contradicts the rest of the passages you know that that certainly makes no sense and we wouldn't do that in any sort of you know modern english literature uh, work as well and better not do it in the bible either yeah and you know what's interesting is what can make things more complicated at times you were talking about revelation of course we see this in isaiah as well as far as a combination of literal and figurative right and so sometimes you don't always know and so therefore you better be careful i think the key thing is just make sure whatever interpretation you feel like could apply does not conflict with other biblical principles. And to me, that's that's one of the keys, right? It's right. just to make sure. Yeah, very, very important key. Yep. So why don't we shift gears now, Jeff, and talk about conditions and circumstances. So we see an example over in Acts chapter 19 and verse 35 here where it says, and when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, so this was a crowd that had been stirred up into a frenzy, if you will, by the Jews. So we're told here, and when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians or city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? So in the passage that we just read here uh, from the book of Acts, you know, the city clerk said that it was common knowledge, certainly among the people of that time, that Ephesus was known for the Temple of Diana. Now, as we read this passage today, you know, we're some 2,000 years later, uh, it's definitely not common knowledge to us. Most of us probably didn't know Diana or the Temple of Diana or what that even meant. Uh, so we have to study further to understand who she was and, and why was she at that time that idol, if you will, so well known. Well, the 19th chapter of Acts also goes into detail about how Paul disrupted a very profitable business of men who were selling silver shrines of Diana. And so this section of scripture illustrates why it is important to consider the conditions and circumstances of the time we're reading about in the Bible to better understand the truth being taught. So in many ways, you know, day-to-day -day life during the period of time the Bible was written was much different than what we experience in our culture today. So for instance, many people that we read about in the Old Testament, you know, they lived in tents. Certainly when you read the, uh, the very first part of the Old Testament, I mean, these are folks that were living in tents, very transient. They moved around oftentimes to help their cattle, you know, to have land to graze on, or they maybe they needed water or whatever it might have been, but they were very transient, you know, sort of... Uh, population that lived in tents. And when we move to the New Testament, uh, by then many people lived in cities and they lived in homes that were very different from tents or even different from the homes that we live in today. So for instance, when you look at the homes that we read about in the first century, their homes often had dirt floors, they didn't have windows, they certainly didn't have things like running water or indoor bathrooms. And whenever they had you know, a famine, for instance, and it affected their food supplies, it's not like today where we simply fly in or ship in food pretty quickly. Uh, that wasn't going to happen back then. There were no, you know, airplanes or trains or whatever. So, you know, when we understand the conditions in which they lived, 
it also helps us to see why it was so critical that when there were things like famines that the brethren helped each other out. We can relate to that a little bit more. Unlike certainly here in America, Jeff, where we you know, almost live in some respects like a welfare state, right? Where it's almost, unless you really try or you're not putting forth the effort, uh, it'd be hard to starve, wouldn't it? It'd be hard to, to really suffer like they did. Right, exactly. So one of the major conditions that Christians in the first century faced was the influence of the Jews. And, you know, if there was ever any group of people that would have accepted or you thought should have accepted Jesus, it would have been the Jews because Jesus was the promised Messiah. Uh, as you mentioned early on, Jeff, you know, this was a group that was familiar with the prophecies under the old law. And, and there definitely were Jews that accepted Jesus, like Nicodemus. Think about him, for instance. However, there are also many Jewish leaders, you know, scribes and Pharisees that we read quite a bit about uh, who conflicted, with fought, literally tried to fight Jesus. You know, they, they rejected him. They did not believe that he was the Messiah. And a lot of it was because they, uh, Jesus didn't fit their preconceived notions. But anyhow, the Jewish leaders were envious of Jesus because he took the attention of their followers away from them. They loved the recognition of the people. And so they became envious of the apostles in the same way. So not only Jesus did they conflict with, but, but the apostles as well. So, you know, this created a challenging environment for Paul and the apostles and often led to their lives being threatened. Um, you know, even in the face of adversity, they boldly proclaim the word of God. And that's one thing that they should be given credit for. Jeff, would you turn over to Acts chapter 13? I wanted to show one example of the challenges that the apostles faced and the persecution they faced uh, in that environment that they lived in back then. And over in Acts chapter 13, Jeff, if I could get you to read verses 42 through 52, I think it'll really help us understand what kind of environment they had to deal with as they okay. preach. And, and let me make a, a quick side comment, you know, for some in our audience. References to words like Pharisee, scribe, in this context we'll read about synagogue, Sabbath, etc. In, in other contexts we read about, you know, shepherds uh, and, the, and the, the good shepherd, uh, etc. You know, those are just additional examples of, you know, words and phrases that, you know, if you don't know what they mean, we'll talk about, you know, study aids in terms of, you know, Bible dictionaries and such, you know, pause and, and go look them up because you'll just lose the context, lose the understanding, yeah, right? Including in this particular uh, point that we're trying to make. Okay, so over to Acts 13, for, starting 42. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now, when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. And contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us. And then he quotes, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. And continue with verse 48. Now, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. 
and as many as had been appointed eternal to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. But Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women, and the chief men of the city raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. They shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So they were filled with joy. They had just been persecuted, right. and then we're now reading they're filled with joy. Why do you suppose that is? Well, because they are doing what they should be doing, you know, proclaiming God's word. And honestly, in some cases, people are responding positively, right? Almost like the, the glass is half full, as opposed to, you know, oh, woe is us, we're being persecuted, uh, etc. Yeah, they had a wonderful attitude, didn't they? It kind of reminds me of Acts chapter 5, where they were commanded and beaten and, you know, told not to pray in the name of Jesus, but they went on their way rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer. And so you're right, though. I mean, I appreciate you bringing up the point about the Gentiles and, and how exciting it must have been for the apostles to have that sort of response to the point where they were asking them, please come back, preach to us more. Uh, and then we're told in verse 48 that, you know, the or not 48, excuse me, uh, 45, uh, that the Jews saw the multitudes and were filled with envy. And so they started contradicting and blaspheming. So we get a kind of a sense that, you know, these apostles were not only under a lot of persecution, but as you read through the book of Acts, they were run out of town a lot of times, weren't they, Jeff? There were several times. Oh, exactly. Well, and in, in some ways it's kind of sad because as again, you read with some of the journeys in the book of Acts, you know, Paul or Paul and his companions would first go to the local town. And if there was a synagogue of the Jews, you know, they'd start there because, you know, these were believers in the one true God. Right. And, and hoping to leverage that knowledge and our knowledge of the Old Testament and Old Testament prophecies to make the case that this Jesus of Nazareth, who was, you know, recently crucified was indeed who he claimed to be. It's interesting that in some ways the Gentiles, often, I guess, steeped in paganism and multi-gods, you know, Roman mythology, etc., would would realize, hey, wait a minute, this is different. The one true God, the one and only true God, boom. That's a totally different message than what we've been raised, brought up, you know, believing in a whole pantheon of gods and goddesses. Um, and in some ways they were more receptive than what the Jews were in some cases. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. And, you know, there, there were many other difficult situations that Christians had to deal with in the first century, uh, in addition to what we just read, you know, persecution. And they also had to deal with idolatry. They had to deal with unbelief, uh, famines, and so forth. And, and we also deal with persecution today. And we, and we all face different attitudes towards religion and the church. If you are a Christian and you're trying to do what's right, uh, the Bible says you will suffer persecution. So getting back to the idea of understanding conditions and circumstances, it's so helpful when studying the Bible to look at the conditions and circumstances that they went through that led them to the beliefs that they held, that lead us to the beliefs that we hold, and, and to see what we can learn. Because certainly there's some comparisons, you know, as Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. So as people, we remain the same. But it's certainly helpful when it comes to the environment that they lived in and how they were being treated by their brethren then 
and this change of laws from the old and the new and, and what circumstances that, that led to. Anyhow, all these things just help us to better understand God's word. Well, and, and not only to be led to a particular position, but also why people were being perhaps led away from a particular position, mm -hmm. like we saw here with the Jews. In, in some cases, they should have known better, you know, based on their knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures. But in some cases, they let, you know, bad attitudes of, you know, envy and jealousy overwhelm or override what they should have known, should have been taught, et cetera. And likewise, we need to kind of watch out for that in ourselves too, you know, sense of pride or, well, my parents taught me to whatever, or, you know, I'm belonging to a particular religious group that has a, uh, you know, long history of whatever, or our particular pastor or preacher or whatever is, is an outstanding published you know, author or TV speaker or whatever. And again, be careful that different sense of instead of love for truth, perhaps love of pride or place or name or position start to bring us away from uh, what the teachings of the Bible would have. Absolutely. That is exactly right. Well, Jeff, that'll wrap up part one. You know, we have more to talk about, so there will be a part two, but, you know, hopefully our audience has found it helpful to take a look at, you know, the importance of why we should study the Bible, why we need to look at things like context and, you know, the passages around something that we're studying to truly understand what that particular group of passages is talking about. We should look at the audience that was being addressed, like we talked about with Matthew and Matthew addressing the Jews. So he used genealogy to show them that Jesus was the Christ. Uh, literal versus figurative language, as you touched on, Jeff, we can get in a lot of trouble if we take figurative things literal and vice versa, if we're not too careful. And then the final thing here, of course, conditions and circumstances. Look at the environment that the brethren were dealing with back in the first century. See what lessons you can learn from it. Next time in our next podcast, Jeff, you want to just tell the audience what we'll be taking a look at in part two? Yeah, we'll, we'll continue kind of looking at different uh, aspects to include the need to correctly understand the definition of words. We'll look at the need to have a, a proper attitude uh, when it comes to studying the Bible. Uh, we'll look at you know, a whole variety of Bible study aids to include things like Bible dictionaries and atlases and commentaries and such. And then I think we'll be, you know, kind of wrapping up with how to make proper application. I mean, it's one thing to understand what a verse might say. It's yet another thing to understand how to actually apply it, you know, perhaps within our modern world, modern context. And I think with a lot of our podcasts, we'll probably wrap up with a, a few questions we've received to the website that have been in some ways, one way or another, related to uh, studying the Bible and properly understanding the Bible. So hopefully our listeners will uh, tune in to uh, part two to hear, quote unquote, the rest of the story. Absolutely. Look forward to talking to you then. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Bible Questions podcast. We invite you to visit our website, biblequestions.org, where you can submit a Bible question to be answered. And you can also search archives where we have answered several hundred Bible questions over the years. Our website also has a host of free Bible study material, free correspondence courses, as well as sermons and a host of other material. Please stop by and check it out.